0: Uh, Good afternoon. I hope you will all take your seats so we can uh, continue in our ambitious efforts to keep today's program on schedule. Uh, uh, This afternoon's moderator is going to be Jay Nordlinger, senior editor of National Review, prolific author, brilliant music critic, moderator, Uh, The best moderator, actually. And I'm going to turn everything over to Jay so we uh, can keep things rolling.
1: Uh,
0: Amazing that someone so immoderate should be a moderator. Thank you,
1: Roger. Thank you very much. I already hear instructions. Say... Can't hear me. Beg your pardon. Is that better? What a big, long, and beautiful room. Hello. Going to do a little adjustment here. Sorry for my slight tardiness, we have a crack panel, welcome to the afternoon session. We, uh, well our title, the title of this session has a, has a Leninist ring, What is to be done? And the subtitle is Legislative Opportunities and Pitfalls. We have a main presenter and three excellent discussants, fortunately they do not all agree. Our presenter is Andrew C. McCarthy, known to many of us as Andy. He's a legal and journalistic warrior. He is currently the director of the Center for Law and Counterterrorism at FDD, the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. And for many years, he was a prosecutor, an assistant US attorney. Some of us met the other day Rush Limbaugh on the street. And he was introducing Andy and he said, this is the man who put away so many bad guys and that is certainly true. That's a heck of a truck and s- some of those bad guys included the first World Trade, Summer, uh, World Trade Center bombers, that 1993 gang that included the so-called Blind Shake. That's better. Thanks for that window closing. In recent years, Andy McCarthy has written tirelessly about the war on terror, particularly as it concerns the law what is permissible, what is not permissible, what laws we need, what laws we should do without, where we are failing, where we are succeeding. He is the author of Willful Blindness, and Memoir of Jihad, which is released by Encounter Books next week. Let me say that after 9-11, a great need arose for people who could explain things, who could help us, and who could advocate and lead. And Andy McCarthy is one of those people, and I and many other readers are in his debt. The title of his paper today is, It Takes the Marketplace of Ideas to Win the War of Ideas. Ladies and gentlemen, Andy McCarthy.
2: Jay, thank you so much for those uh, kind words, and... I I do prefer warrior to jihadist, so I'm especially um, grateful for that. Um, Fifteen years ago, in February of 1993, radical Islam brought its global war to our shores by bombing the World Trade Center. During the age of jihad that has enveloped us ever since, the American judicial system has a troubled record when it comes to safeguarding Americans. To know that this is so, we New Yorkers need look no further than the crater where the Twin Towers once stood. About six blocks away from that crater, uh, from ground zero, is the storied Foley Square Federal Courthouse. That is the battlefield on which we chose to confront the enemy through eight tumultuous years when prosecution in the criminal justice system was the essence of our counterterrorism strategy. The result? Less than three dozen mostly low-level jihadists neutralized, a provocatively weak response, I would submit, that can only have encouraged the series of attacks that finally culminated in 9-11. For our jihadist enemies, by contrast, our courts have proved extraordinarily effective. The Supreme Court has repeatedly accommodated requests that it supplant the political branches in what used to be the quintessentially political act of conducting war. Just since 2004, the justices have seized jurisdiction over wartime detainees, nullified the centuries-old power of the president to convene military commissions, and effectively rewritten the Geneva Conventions into a terrorist-friendly, judicially enforceable treaty. In a few short weeks, the justices will decide whether to grant alien enemy combatants American constitutional rights. The lower courts, meanwhile, have called into doubt government surveillance authority and even the commander-in-chief's power to say what a battlefield is, all in the context of a war where the enemy reserves the right to attack anyone, any place, at any time. To say the least, lawfare has left our body politic more the victim than the beneficiary of our system's reserves of due process and its veneration of individual rights. Where free speech is concerned, it's an especially insidious phenomenon. Mark Stein and Ezra Levant are trenchant in discussing the official shenanigans of governmental bodies that suppress free speech under the guise of policing hatred. Perhaps more insidious are the accounts uh, many of our panelists have provided about the unofficial infiltration by jihadist sympathizers into the highest reaches of our government. The agenda is relentless, if not always obvious. They seek to quell dissent from the party line, not by formally destroying freedom of speech. The First Amendment, after all, is still on the books. More fundamentally, the suppression proceeds by shaping the choosing mentalities and narrowing the list of acceptable attitudes and acceptable topics of public study and inquiry. To function properly and persevere, Free societies are dependent on what Justice Holmes famously described as the marketplace of ideas, free exchange, the conceit that the sunshine of examination, not suppression, is the best disinfectant. Well, the war on terror is driven by an ideology. Even though we recoil from naming the ideology, we are repeatedly reminded that the war of ideas will be every bit as dispositive as the war on the battlefield. If that is the case, then as ideas go, the war must embrace the marketplace. That is the challenge posed by libel tourism. Will our First Amendment marketplace be unleashed in the battle of ideas, or will we uh, unilaterally disarm? In considering potential legal responses to libel tourism's suppression of speech, we must of course realize that this is a phenomenon of the international arena. Libel tourism involves forum shopping in order to bring lawsuits in a country that meets two criteria. Um, The first uh, is that uh, it's a uh, a legal system which, contrary to the American legal system, uh, actually imposes the burden of proof on the writer uh, rather than on the subject of what is written. Um, The second criterion uh, is that it's a legal system whose dispositions are ones that merit respect globally. If uh, Sheikh bin Mahfouz uh, had brought his actions, uh, say, in the courts of Sierra Leone, I doubt that we'd be having a conference today. Um, and that's the challenge that uh, that is the challenge that we have to confront. Um, just two weeks ago, in a case called uh, Medellin versus Texas. Uh, The Supreme Court of the United States, uh, in a decision that was written by Chief Justice Roberts, uh, reminded us of first principles when we are dealing with issues in the international arena. Uh, And I think it's important to remember that in those types of issues, judicial processes are not favored. The international arena is the arena of politics. It is the arena of diplomacy. Uh, And thus it was that Chief Justice Roberts reminded us that The conduct of the foreign relations of our government is committed by the Constitution to the executive and legislative, that is the political branches. Uh, It is in the political realm, he elaborated, that sensitive foreign policy decisions are to be made. They are not to be transferred to state and federal courts unless the political branches clearly provide for court intervention. Now, we lawyers can chatter till we're blue in the face about legislation, but let us be frank. Libel tourism would not be a problem if our political policymakers were offended by it. Right after 9-11, in the fleeting uh, with us or against us heyday, President Bush boldly threatened to treat terror sponsoring regimes as the equivalent of terrorist organizations. One might have hoped that that would mean a clear-eyed recognition of the nexus between Saudi Wahhabism and the rampage wrought by Al-Qaeda, One might have hoped for relentless pressure to force force the Saudi regime to change its ways, not least by promoting efforts to expose Saudi facilitation of jihadism, sunlight after all, being the best disinfectant. Instead, our Saudi policy is more like, you're with us or against us, whatever you like. We officially regard the Saudis as key allies in the war on terror, even as we acquiesce in their zealous exportation of a triumphalist hate ideology. All in all, it is part of a determination shared by administrations of both parties to ally the Islamic in Islamic terror, to portray jihadists as imposters who have perverted the real Islam, and to insist that Muslim belligerents are really animated by poverty, ancient grievances, lack of democracy, anything but scriptural commands to quell uh, non-believers. The conclusion is unavoidable. Our government has been far from exercised over the silencing of an inconvenient truth. Were that not the case, diplomacy could have ended this problem. The U.S. has many diplomatic avenues and pressure points for influencing the Saudi and British governments and their policies. If it were moved to do so, the British Parliament could staunch libel tourism tomorrow just by heightening the flimsy jurisdictional threshold that gives non britons access to the UK's courts on on the basis of such gossamer as the online purchase of 23 books, as uh, happened in Rachel Ehrenfeld's case. Here, though, let me say this. It's worth pausing to give our British friends credit where credit is due. Until very recently, the most positive legal developments regarding libel tourism have occurred on the other side of the pond. In the groundbreaking 2006 case of Jamil versus The Wall Street Journal, the law lords brought British defamation law much closer to American standards. British law has always put the onus on journalists to prove the truth of their assertions. This is a stark contrast from American First Amendment jurisprudence, which imposes on a public figure the weighty burden of proving that a journalist's assertions are not merely false, but maliciously or recklessly so. In the the inevitable clash of values, the American theory elevates a functioning democracy's interest in being fully informed about matters of public concern over the individual's interest in protecting his reputation. Our system conveys a practical understanding that many things which are true cannot be proved to the satisfaction of courtroom evidentiary standards. Knowledgeable sources often insist on confidentiality for fear of reprisal and embarrassment. Government has been known to conceal its misdeeds under a carapace of classified information, which dispirits potential whistleblowers with the prospect of prosecution. The Jameel case does not fully bring uh, British law in alignment with its U.S. counterpart. Uh, It does, however, make positive strides in that direction. It creates a qualified privilege for the establishment journalists who are accused of publishing falsehoods. They must be able to satisfy the court that they have reported on matters that are truly in the public interest and that their reporting has been done in a responsible fashion. Now, this is a brave new world for the United Kingdom, and we need to watch closely for clarification. Who is a journalist? What does in the public interest mean? What is responsible journalism? All these questions have to go. But we should face up and, and be glad about the fact that Jamil is an encouraging development. Writing in the Weekly Standard, Stephen Schwartz uh, sounded this optimistic note. The action of the law lords may also express the strengthened will of an important section of the British political and legal establishment to remove the protections Saudis have long enjoyed in the United Kingdom. We can hope he's right, and yet still realize that it is past time to remove those protections in the United States as well. Without the prospect for diplomatic breakthrough, I think that means legislation. And it's here where I think I part company with our colleague John Walsh, who we'll be hearing from uh, in a few moments. Um, John wrote in a, in a thoughtful uh, New York Law Journal essay uh, that was called uh, The Myth of Libel Tourism, that our concerns, uh, or those of us who are concerned about libel tourism, that those concerns are overwrought, or at least not sufficiently sensitive to some other important competing interests. Um, Our British allies, he rightly observes, have, have a venerable legal system, which is the forefather of our own. Dr. Ehrenfeld could have responded to Sheikh Mahfouz's British libel suit. Had she done so, he maintains, she'd have had a meaningful opportunity to back up her charge of terrorism support, uh, a burden Jamil, at least theoretically, has made easier to carry. Uh, It's not unusual to hear such objections for, from lawyers. Uh, For us, Litigation is as natural as breathing, uh, and maybe even more desirable for the obvious reasons. Um, But we tend to overlook that, for most everyone else, litigation is incredibly time consuming, burdensome, and expensive. Dr. Ehrenfeld is no bad actor. She was contributing to our vaunted marketplace of ideas. She was engaged in First Amendment protected activity when Funding Evil was originally published in 2003. Publication is in New, was in New York where she lives and works. She and her publisher made no attempt to market the book in England. And when Sheikh Mahfouz chose to file his lawsuit, Jamil was not yet the law of the United Kingdom. Had she chosen to fight the suit, Dr. Ehrenfeld thus faced the prospect of spending several years and hundreds of thousands of dollars litigating in a foreign country thousands of miles from home where she had not sought to publish her assertions and in the UK, she was likely to lose. And she was likely to lose not because she was wrong, much less malicious, not because she was uttering words of no public concern, and not because she intended to cause harm. She was likely to lose because many of her assertions stem from reputable synopses of classified information, testimony about which she is in no position to provide. I note that Richard Clark. Um, formerly the top counterterrorism official in the Clinton administration, told the Senate Banking Committee in 2003 that Sheikh bin Mahfouz had transferred $3 million to Osama bin Laden through an organization the Treasury Department had already described as an al-Qaeda front. Now, Congress can make that kind of testimony happen. Rachel Ehrenfeld can't. Congress can demand information from current and former uh, government officials. It can retreat into closed session if top secret corroboration is required. A private civil litigant cannot do that, not even in American courts, much less in the public courts of a foreign country. But here's a more important point. Quite apart from Dr. Ehrenfeld's personal interest, the subject matter of her research and writing implicated our highest public interest the financial support systems enjoyed by terror networks that target Americans for mass murder. The signal issue is not whether Dr. Ehrenfeld could have defended herself, it's whether she should have had to. If such lawsuits are permitted, journalists will not write about the central national security challenges of our time. If some intrepid few do try to take the plunge, they cannot reasonably expect the corporate publishers or research-sponsoring foundations will freely plunge along with them. There are shareholders and donors to answer to. Publishers and foundations have the deeper pockets. For the libel tourist, they are the likelier and more attractive targets. In the atmosphere, in that atmosphere, such critical stories as the Saudi underwriting of Islamic terror will not be told. Sure, the First Amendment will still be on the books, but the enemy's enablers will have succeeded in shaping our minds, and narrowing the fields of legitimate inquiry. They will have determined what we get to talk about. And there is an irony here that should be intolerable, I think, to all of us. All these consequences consequences would have flown from a transparent scheme to skew public opinion by intimidation. This is all about scaring off publishers and discouraging scholarly inquiry. The Ehrenfeld case proves it. The Saudi Sheikh went to a British court to obtain a judgment against an American that he had absolutely no intention of ever collecting on. The judgment amount, $225,000, give or take, might be substantial for Dr. Ehrenfeld, but it's chump change for Sheikh Mahfouz, whose personal worth has been estimated at $3.2 billion. The US was the only place he could have hoped to collect on the judgment, but it wasn't worth the trouble, and he never tried. Dr. Ehrenfeld uh, basically dared him to try by filing a responsive American suit seeking a judicial declaration that the First Amendment would be violated if he attempted to collect. His reaction? He fought tooth and nail against being brought into the U.S. justice system. To flip around John Walsh's contention, Mahfouz thumbed his nose at the U.S. court system, even though it would have provided him with a meaningful opportunity to refute Dr. Ehrenfeld's claims. To execute on the judgment, he would have had to subject himself to the jurisdiction of the U.S. courts. That's the very thing he most energetically fought against doing, and it was a well-considered strategy. It resulted in the conclusion of the American courts uh, that Rachel's suit had to be dismissed, uh, which, because for now there was, uh, or at least at the time, uh, no jurisdiction over him. In sum, Sheikh Mahfouz wants to have the British judgment, not act on it. His concern is not Dr. Ehrenfeld's purported slights. What he wants is the intimidation effect the British default judgment has on potential publishers and backers of Dr. Ehrenfeld's work and the work of others like her. The the warning that it conveys about the wages of exposing information about Saudi terror sponsorship, vexatious litigation, and mountainous costs. Recognizing this trend, many American states have enacted uh, so-called SLAP laws or anti-SLAP laws. The acronym is for uh, Strategic Lawsuit Against Public Participation, and Brooke Goldstein uh, talked about it earlier this morning. SLAP directs itself against suits that are just like Sheikh Mahfouz's. They're pri- the ones that are filed primarily to harass those who seek to address matters of public concern. It allows the defendant to submit basically a, pre- de- a pretrial trial, pre-discovery motion uh, that argues to the court that the suit is frivolous under our First Amendment law, and it allows the court, before all of the costly stages of a litigation take place, uh, to dismiss the suit on those grounds. A recent example of its usefulness uh, is the case of uh, the Yale University Press and Matthew Levitt uh, of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. They filed an anti-slap motion against a Muslim charitable organization called Kinder USA. Yale had published Dr. Levitt's book, Hamas, Politics, Charity, and Terrorism in the Service of Jihad, which based on exacting research, documented the ties between Palestinian, uh, the Palestinian terror organization's charitable activities and its savagery. Uh, Kinder USA was one of the charities that was implicated. Uh, and Hamas being a long-time recipient of Saudi largesse, it's probably no surprise that Kinder USA emulated Sheikh Mafouz's method, uh, basically suing the author, his research institute, and his publisher. It tried to do so, however, in the United States, specifically in California, uh, which is the home of uh, SLAP le- uh, legislation. Uh, the defendants responded with an anti-SLAP uh, motion, Uh, And faced with the prospect of having its frivolous suit thrown out and being ordered to pay the legal costs of the other side, uh, the kinder USA folded. Um, Unfortunately, uh, slap laws are useless against the libel tourist who lodges his claims before foreign tribunals. Back in England, American slap laws were of no avail to Rachel Ehrenfeld. Similarly, they provided no comfort for Cambridge University Press, which, as we've heard a number of times today, cravenly caved into Sheikh Mahfouz's tactics. Cambridge, of course, not only paid a settlement and issued a gushing apology for its publication of Alms to Jihad, uh, as Stanley Kurtz recounted, uh, in the worst book burning tradition, it actually uh, c- recalled the already distributed copies of the book and pulped the entire unsold lot. Uh, and for those, who point to the law law lord's decision in the Jamil case and contend that the United States doesn't need to take any action because now all is well in England, I think Arms for Jihad stands as a cautionary tale. Uh, The book was published, uh, at least fleetingly, the year that Jamil was decided, in 2006. Um, Cambridge's total surrender occurred in 2007, the following year after Jamil was already on the books. Clearly, despite Jamil, the publisher was still confronted with the prospect of lengthy, expensive litigation uh, and took the path of least resistance. And that's why I would submit to you that we need American legislation, we need an American legislative response uh, for for two major reasons. First, in the U.S., the libel tourist will lose, uh, and the libel tourist deserves to lose. Relatedly, as plaintiffs, Uh, researchers like Dr. Ehrenfeld would be unleashed to conduct an extensive, uh, through our generous discovery laws, they'd be able to conduct an extensive probe of the finances and terror connections uh, of the likes of Sheikh Mahfouz. That, I would argue to you, is the main reason that he doesn't want to be brought into American courts. As already noted, the New York State Legislature has recently taken action. At the end of March 2008, it passed the Libel Terrorism Protection Act, um, I'm, I'm less sanguine than, uh, than, than Stanley is that the, that the terrorism is intentional, I, I, but uh, let's congratulate them at least for passing the law. Um, if, if signed by Governor Patterson, this bipartisan legislation would effectively reverse the results of Dr. Ehrenfeld's suit. Henceforth, New York courts uh, and federal courts applying New York law would have jurisdiction in a case where an alleged libel was published in New York where the author or her sponsors or publisher are New Yorkers or at least have property in New York that could be executed on as part of the judgment. Uh, And a foreign judgment, this is the third condition, a foreign judgment uh, has been obtained in a jurisdiction which, uh, as assessed by the New York judge in a New York case, um, did not provide at least as much protection for free speech and the press as is provided by the Constitution of the United States and the state of New York. Naturally, critics complain that such legislation is an instance of forcing American standards on foreign countries, an unwarranted departure from the deference we owe other sovereigns within their own jurisdictions. But that is hardly the case. The proposed law narrowly directs itself to alleged defamations published in New York. It does not, and indeed could not, compel other nations to adopt America's press-friendly standards. It does not, and could not, stop a libel tourist like uh, Sheikh Mafuz from continuing to troll the planet for hospitable legal climes. Instead, it recognizes that foreign actors are aggressively seeking to deny Americans the deference owed to our own sovereignty within our own jurisdiction regarding actions that take place here, publications that take place here. Uh, Moreover, in a healthy departure from the modern currents of lawfare, it arms Americans with the legal tools to stave off an assault, a development that has the residual and all-important benefit of promoting the free exchange of information that is vital (coughs) to good public policy. The most persuasive criticism of the New York bill is that it's not enough, and that's through no fault of the New York lawmakers. New York City is an international media and book publishing hub And it may be that the state's legislation will provide the tonic necessary to invigorate the First Amendment against most attacks. But it won't suffice against all of them. It is, more to the point, an American freedom we are talking about, not merely one vouchsafed by New York's Constitution. It is the national government's first responsibility to protect the federally guaranteed rights of the governed. And one would hope it would do so with at least as much verve as has animated it to provide, say, judicial review for alien enemy combatants detained by our military in the middle of making war on the American people. Libel tourism represents a challenge to a fundamental right of our citizens, a freedom on which the functioning of a democracy depends. Congress should craft an anti-libel tourism statute creating a federal cause of action for American journalists and their publishers and sponsors who are sued in defamation actions based on the U.S. publication of allegedly libelous claims. The statute should provide for expedited discovery, as well as damages and costs commensurate with the foreign judgment and the expenditures in the foreign case. It should, in fact, go further. In its preliminary ruling last summer in the Ehrenfeld case, The United States court of appeals for the second circuit took note of Dr. Ehrenfeld's contention that Mahfouz had engaged in a scheme designed to undermine Rachel's ability to conduct research and write for publication. As part of the new cause of action, I believe Congress should empower the court to impose double or treble damages. If such a scheme is proved by a preponderance of the evidence to date, No federal legislation has been proposed, though Representative Peter King of New York, the ranking Republican on the uh, House Homeland Security Committee, is actively engaged in the issue and and may actually uh, propose some legislation. Action, though, is sorely needed. Unlike most legislation, a provision to combat libel tourism would actually result in a reduction of litigation. Aware that their tactics are no longer cost-free, Sheikh Mafouz and others would be far less likely to launch foreign suits, which would then obviate the need to have American countersuits. Truly irresponsible journalists who publish malicious falsehoods would still be liable under American and foreign law. The new legislation would protect only writers and publishers who adhere to standards of professionalism. The national government, however, would have reaffirmed the centrality of free expression, the supremacy of American sovereignty over actions taken within our own realm, and the commitment to protect Americans by law. Of perhaps greater significance, in the struggle against jihadism that is the central challenge of our time, a libel tourism law would revitalize the national purpose to defeat our enemies just as decisively in the war on ideas as we fight them on the battlefield. Thank you.
1: Thanks. Do just a little rearranging. Excuse me a second. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Andy, very much. We will turn to our discussants. Let me introduce them in alphabetical order. And uh, then we'll have statements and and talk. Judge Bork, Robert H. Bork, has been many things. A Marine, the Solicitor General, the Acting Attorney General, a Court of Appeals judge, a National Review Cruise specialist and favorite. For 20 years, he added diversity to the Yale Law faculty. <laughs> <laughs> Among his students were Bill Clinton and Hillary Rodham. <laughs> <laughs> he, Bob likes to say he didn't teach them, they were just in the room.
3: <laughs>
1: <laughs> He's currently a distinguished fellow at the Hudson Institute. He is a distinguished visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. He's a distinguished fellow wherever he goes. And he teaches at the Ave Maria Law School in Michigan. At a panel last week, also in the Princeton Club, as it happened, I described Bob Bork as one of the driest, best wits in the West. I don't know whether our current topic provides an outlet for humor, but we'll see. Daniel Kornstein is a partner in his own law firm, Kornstein, Weiss, Wexler, and Pollard. Like Bill and Hillary Clinton, he is a graduate of Yale Law, and like them, he was a student of Bob Bork. I have a feeling he paid close attention. (laughs) I learned in reading about him that he has been listed for the last 14 years in the best lawyers in America. I also learned that he was selected, get this, as a New York super lawyer the last two years. And this is best of all. Mr. Kornstein won the Prix du Palais Littéraire from the Palais Litteraire Musical for his writing on Balzac and the law. As Bill Buckley would say, beat that. <laughs> and as far as I know, John J. Walsh has not won any French law and literature awards. How many of us have? But he's had a distinguished career. He's a senior counsel in Carter, Ledyard, and Milburn. He's a leading expert on First Amendment law. And as Andy McCarthy mentioned, perhaps most pertinent to us, He published an article called The Myth of Liable Tourism in New York Law Journal. Now each of these discussants will talk for five to seven minutes. If it goes much longer, I may tap a bit. And we'll begin with Judge Bob Bork.
4: Well, thank you, Jay. Uh, I should say, in mitigation of my failed career, that I also, no, no, I'm talking about my academic career. uh, Oh, I'm sorry. Can can you hear this thing at all now? No. Well, what now?
5: Bring it closer.
4: Closer to your mouth. Now, are we, uh, is this thing working? Yes, indeed. All right. I was saying in mitigation of these charges, I should point out that also among my students at Yale were Jack Danforth and John Bolton. <laughs> John Bolton.
1: Uh, judge, aren't you, responsible, aren't you responsible for Governor Jerry Brown, too?
4: Yeah, and also Anita Hill and Robert Reich. All right. <laughs>
1: you have a balanced record. <laughs> Look, Jerry Brown's done some good work lately. Pardon me? Jerry Brown's done some good work since his retirement from, from Sacramento.
4: Well, you plant the seeds, and it takes a long time for them to germinate. <laughs> It's it's unfortunate that uh, I'm first after the presenter because uh, Mr. Walsh has put up things that we would uh, maybe question, but uh, he's, he's got about
1: cleanup against you all. I have so to go. That's ahead. right. I
4: have to I have to question him without anybody knowing what he said. <laughs> uh, but uh, but he wrote a very uh, interesting article in the New York Law Journal. But uh, it seems to me um it misses the point somewhat. He points, I tell he reminds us that the First Amendment stops at the shores of the United States. We can't force it on other countries. And of course, the legislation that, uh, that uh, Andrew McCarthy was seeking and also that Sarah uh, uh, Sarenfeld wanted, by judicial decree, does not extend the First Amendment beyond our shores. It merely says the First Amendment protects our shores from th- incoming uh, libel missiles. Uh, and uh, we don't, contrary to what he says here, I think, we don't demonize the British courts. They're following their law. There's no reason why they shouldn't follow their law. It's just there's no, no reason why we should accept the, uh, the uh, result of their laws on discussions in America. So I, I think perhaps Mr. Walsh will have a, a, a fresh set of uh, objections by the time uh, we get to it. Because I don't think these particular ones really make a strong case against some legislative or judicial response to prevent the kind of libel tourism we see here. But turning to uh, Mr., uh, turning to Andy's. Thing I, I wish you wouldn't use, Andy, the, the, the phrase "marketplace of ideas." Uh, that's uh, Holmes—one of his less, one of his greater rhetorical moments, but less analytical uh, moments. Did
1: you say Holmes, Bob?
4: Holmes. Did he? He oh. uh, referred to the marketplace of ideas. But he should know—he, he of all people, should know—that the marketplace does not solve all questions. He was wounded four times himself in the Civil War, which should remind him that sometimes ideas aren't dominant. That the slaughter of the battlefield is what decides issues. And I, if, if there's—it's not quite clear who the marketplace of ideas would include. If we're talk, I doubt that we're going to float our ideas against. Uh, uh, Islamo-fascist ideas and hope to persuade them. We're not going to persuade them. And I think it's going to come down to uh, to a, c- a contest. And the importance of free publication here is to inform our people as to what's taking place and what's at stake, not an attempt to convert the world to our viewpoint. Uh, and besides, the marketplace of ideas is a metaphor It sort of suggests a moral equivalence between uh, the kind of uh, speech that the leaders in Iran use and our own. And I don't think there is a moral equivalence. Uh, uh, And and I don't think anybody ought to think that we ought to just put their ideas on the market and uh, have have a nice debate. We're in a we're in a struggle, not a debating society. But I'm just objecting to the metaphor, because clearly the uh, the importance of uh, public publication here is very great. Now the uh, legislation we're talking about and the responses we're talking about are not without their difficulties. For example, if if we um, say that a a judgment from a foreign court in a libel case that does not meet our First Amendment standards may not be enforced here, that still leaves the publisher and the author, perhaps, liable to uh, enforcement of the judgment in all all kinds of other countries. So it's not quite clear that that we're going to accomplish a great deal. I'm, 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 all for, I'm all for doing it, but a uh, publisher with an international business is not going to be protected terribly well by that thing. Now, on the, the question of suing uh, people who file frivolous lawsuits here, uh, I guess. There's no problem with, with personal jurisdiction, but there are, should be, a I imagine, a real problem of getting foreign countries to ec, let us execute on the judgment uh, that we get here. Uh, so that uh, I'm not at all clear that these pieces of legislation are enough, but they're worth doing. Just as I think I disagreed with, somewhat this morning with the people who were – opposed to using the Human Rights Commission to attack Islamic uh, discrimination and Islamic uh, hate speech. I don't like those commissions. They should go away. But one of the most effective ways of getting rid of a bad law is to enforce it. Uh, you know, if you want to get rid of a, of a, of a, a draconian anti gambling statute that really interrupts the weekly pinnacle game, you, you arrest the local priest for his bingo game and, and pretty soon the law is gone or you uh, have an independent counsel for the first time begin to investigate a democratic president and, and, and that that law is gone so this uh, mr. stark contributed a good deal to our well-being but uh, I think it's time we do go on the offensive and I'd be all for the statute that uh, Andrew Ferguson proposes whatever its difficulties because we need the main problem in this country right now is the fact that we don't have a strong understanding that we are in fact in a war that could result in the in the uh, submission of the west Uh, That point was made strongly by some of the speakers, including Mark Stein. And these counterstrikes are ways of demonstrating a willingness to fight and a way of raising morale among the American people. And I'm all for that. Uh, Now, fortunately, just as we were starting this, the latest edition of the new criterion came in. And and Roger has... uh, an excellent piece on Rudyard Kipling. But in summing up, Evelyn Waugh was writing about Kipling. He said, Kipling (laughs) believed civilization to be something laboriously achieved, which was only precariously defended. He wanted to see the defenses fully manned, and he hated the liberals because he thought them gullible and feeble believing in the easy perfectibility of man and ready to abandon the work of centuries for sentimental qualms. Well, I think it it is true that civilizations are fragile. They've hit in the right place and that uh, our defenses so far have been feeble and precarious. And a counteroffensive, using um, laws such as we've discussed, and even using the Human Rights Commissions, I think is entirely appropriate to rallying people uh, into a struggle that's going to go on for a long time.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Judge. Um, Andy, I'm going to depart from our prescribed program Ask you to answer that in two minutes, not a second more, and then we'll move on with the discussants. Thanks.
2: I, I don't think there's a, a lot to answer because I, I essentially agree with Judge Bork. It, it, people will see if the fuller paper comes out. The marketplace of ideas is not one of my favorite phrases either, but I think it is one that is right probably about 90% of the time. And my suggestion is not that we get into a debating society over whose values are better. Uh, My suggestion is, in order to protect our own society, in order to protect our own national security, we have to make policy fully aware of all the essential facts and we can't have a situation where facts that are critical to our protection are taken off the table because of political correctness or any other reason. so to the, to the extent the marketplace of ideas is a useful metaphor for, or, or at least a, uh, uh, well, I'll say a useful metaphor for the notion that we need to bring to bear all of the critical facts for an important inquiry, um, it may not be the greatest phrase in all of its uh, possible applications, but th- I think in this one, which is a national security context, uh, context not a contest of values, but a, a matter about protecting us. Uh, I think it's useful. Thank you, uh,
1: Mr. Walsh. I'd like to give you a choice, which is unusual for a moderator. I was going to have you bat cleanup, so to speak, and answer all three of these men at once. Would you prefer to speak your piece or your initial piece now, or would—or shall we have Mr. Kornstein speak his piece and then you follow?
3: Uh, given that I'm probably the, the lone voice on some of the things that I'll be talking about, I'd prefer to go last.
5: Fine. Well, then, with no further ado, Daniel Kornstein. This is a special occasion for me uh, because in 1971, I have been away in the Army for two years. I came back to return to law school, and I enrolled in Professor Bork's antitrust course. One of the issues that he was working on then and we were discussing in class is really an older version of the same problem we have now, because we're really dealing with an old new problem, and that's the abuse of litigation. In the antitrust context, Professor Bork, and we always think of people in the context that we first knew them, Professor Bork, uh, had a theory that if People in business use the courts to hurt their competitors and these are sham litigations. That should be a violation of the antitrust laws. And the problem or the question was, what standards do we arrive at? What policies do we use to determine when there is such a violation? We're not dealing with antitrust. We're dealing with libel tourism. But the problem is essentially the same. You have, on the one side, people claiming constitutional rights to go to court to bring cases. On the other hand, you have other rights in the antitrust context to be able to compete. In our context, the First Amendment, freedom of expression. But what criteria do we have, and how do we implement it? And uh, in many ways, Professor Bork's solutions then were very far-sighted, and it, it shows a rare consistency. It's uh, 37 years ago, and it's uh, very impressive. It's not something that, that people talk about, um, as well as uh, Judge Bork's decision in a case called Ullman versus Evans when uh, he was on the D.C. Circuit. It was a, a libel case where uh, Judge Bork decided in favor of the press and uh, you you see a theme running through that's um, very impressive. Question is, what is to be done? And um, in many ways, the actual effect, the real world effect is less important than the symbolic effect of what's happening. Uh, The fact that uh, people like Dr. Ehrenfeld Uh, bring lawsuits. The fact that legislation has been passed is a symbol, and it's an important symbol, in terms of keeping the banner aloft that tells the world, tells publishers, uh, tells everyone that these things are important to us, that we're not going to be discouraged, that we're not going to stop writing, printing, and publishing and we have to make it important and worthwhile Um, ultimately in the long run there'll have to be some sort of international treaty or convention that deals with this because it's a global problem Uh, in many ways it's a a perfect storm of a problem you have uh, issues of the internet and instantaneous globalization publishing you have the first amendment interests you have the national security war on terrorism interests they all come together in this problem And that's a new complex of issues to deal with. It's evolving. Uh, If you publish something on the internet in America, it's immediately available everywhere. Does that mean that uh, someone publishing here can be liable in Sri Lanka or Australia? And these are not names picked out of a hat. There have been very significant libel judgments uh, in those countries against very large organizations. And as uh, Professor Bork mentioned, Large publishing companies have assets worldwide, so that to say that they may be able to sue here to have a declaration of unenforceability uh, doesn't do it in terms of real-world consequences. Something more has to be done. Um, The the three of us agree that uh, Mr. Walsh's objections to the New York State statute um, don't really measure up. One of his... Uh, arguments is that the the notion of reciprocity between foreign countries and us would be upset by that uh, but that's not really true. The, the law has been internationally forever that one country does not have to enforce uh, a law or rule or judgment of another country if it's repugnant to an important public policy. That's been the law in New York for a long time. What the new legislation does is specifically Mention it in the context of libel terrorism, these kind of libel suits, together with uh, extending the jurisdiction. I mean, the problem that we had was, uh, how does a New York court get jurisdiction over someone like Bin Mafuz, um if he says he doesn't have contacts here? Our argument was the targeting of American publishers, American writers, uh, the uh, formulation of a scheme to prevent the inquiry into his work. And aiming that scheme at people in New York was enough for jurisdiction. The court said the statute wasn't clear enough. Go to the legislature. And a remarkable, I mean, absolutely stunning um, uh, turn of events. The decision from the highest court in New York came down on December 20th. December 21st, the uh, New York State Assembly uh, was already uh, speaking to us about the legislation. And. If anyone else knows a piece of legislation in New York State that passed within three months unanimously in both the State Assembly and the State Senate, I'm willing to listen to it because we're unaware of that, and it's uh, just an amazing event, and we're all hopeful that it'll be the first piece of legislation uh, signed by our new governor.
1: Thank you. Well, Mr. Walsh, it's time for you to refute the table.
3: <laughs> it's pretty intimidating to uh, sit here and get a failing grade from uh, <laughs> Professor Bork on my uh, November uh, 20th article. Uh, nevertheless, I believe what not I said. Failing, not failing, C minus. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But by, by, by the way, Mr. Walsh, a Judge Bork C minus is about a B plus
3: today. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I think maybe I'll take it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, well, I'm the spoil sport uh, here today, and I uh, and I'm a spoil sport in a sense on a lot of the technical kind of things that lawyers are want to uh, talk about. Uh, but I hope I make some uh, sense to you. Nevertheless, my curiosity about uh, Dr. Ehrenfeld's case here in New York and what I've learned since, including today about some of the background of what's been going on in in England certainly leads me to uh, a number of of questions. I'm a trial lawyer. I've been doing it for almost 50 years. And uh, so I think in terms of what happens in trials, what the value of particular kinds of evidence uh, is. And that's one reason why I have uh, an objection to uh, the law uh, as it uh, passed, and uh, even though it's a pleasure to sit next to Dan Kornstein and talk about it uh, to the case that he brought here on behalf of uh, Dr. Aaron Ehrenfeld. I hold no particular brief for uh, Mr. Uh, Ben-Rafouz. I don't know him, never done any work for uh, him, so... Uh, with that in uh, mind, here's uh, what I wonder about. For instance, in her, the uh, expanded uh, edition of uh, Funding Evil, that I got it right, Dr. <laughs> Funding Evil, uh, she wrote uh, Despite the enormous cost involved, I have decided to take up it upon myself to challenge Khalid bin Wafoos and provide the UK court with evidence that he, the Mawafak Foundation, and the NCB have in fact supported al-Qaeda and Hamas. And she described it as a challenge that she was going to undertake. But she reversed course, and I wonder why. Uh, I think part of the answer is that a strategy was developed that maybe more could be accomplished uh, over here. Uh, and that, now I have heard that um, Fouz has been uh, victorious, if you will, without bringing suits or by simply filing a, a claim or a threatening letter in over 41 particular situations. And my question to, to all of you who, who believe, as you do, in the importance of, of establishing truth, why hasn't someone taken him on? There's got to be a reason beyond cost. I can understand Dr. Ehrenfeld as a lone uh, academician, researcher, uh, finding it a very daunting thing to take on the challenge. But certainly, uh, there are very, very good barristers and solicitors in uh, the UK who who might have taken up her cause. Dow Jones did it in the Jamil case, fought it all the way through the trial, and uh, established a reiteration in the House of Lords of the 10-year-old Reynolds decision, which established the principle of uh, no liability in cases where the reporting was uh, in the public interest, on a subject of public interest, and could be uh, shown to be responsible journalism, as Andy described. Uh, uh, English law is not as monstrous as uh, you've been led to believe here. Now, I have a number of uh, objections to uh, the law that's just been passed uh, uh, labeled the Libel Terrorism Protection Act, and they uh, run to uh, primarily (coughs) the notion that it's an unnecessary law. (coughs) Uh, If enforcement of a foreign libel judgment is to be uh, thwarted over here, uh, there already exists uh, a mechanism because enforcement can only be done through a judicial proceeding. And the American Constitution and the Bill of Rights and First Amendment law can come into play. And in the only uh, recorded New York decision in uh, our court of first instance of a case quite a few years ago, I think more than 10 years, uh, the decision was made in favor of uh, the uh, American-based uh, entity, uh, and not the uh, claimant from India who won the English uh, libel judgment. That's the Bakshan uh, case. Similar decisions have been rendered in other courts, in Maryland, I think in, uh, in Colorado. Uh, the other thing that gets me about the, uh, and I'll call it the uh, LTPA, for, uh, uh, if I have to repeat it, is that it doesn't just single out cases brought abroad based on allegations of terrorism or terrorism support. This law debars every claimant of every kind who wins an English libel judgment uh, because it's expressed in general terms. It doesn't single out libel terrorism cases. Probably it couldn't to even get a, a nod in the legislature. But nevertheless, that uh, doesn't mitigate the effect. That say a, a man wrongly accused of sexual abuse of children uh, by an American author's publication, which reaches Great Britain and uh, sufficiently to get jurisdiction in the courts there, and uh, he proves uh, or. In effect, the person who made that charge is invited to come over and defend it. Uh, under this law, they'll just stay back here and say, you know, do as you will. Uh, the other thing about uh, the strategy uh, employed in Dr. Aaron Ehrenfeld's case is that after having uh, told her readers that she was going to uh, challenge Mafuz, she changed her mind and defaulted. Now, the consequences of default under our system of law, under the British system of law, almost every worldwide system of law are well-known. You're going to have something called the default judgment rendered against you. So you anticipated and took on that burden. And I think it doesn't, you know, lie necessarily well in the mouth of someone uh, who defaults to then start complaining about the consequences when the person who gained that default uh, comes over here, uh, and in Mafuz's case, he hasn't uh, come over here. Is that a strategy? I have no doubt uh, that it is. Is it, is it a strategy he's entitled to employ? I believe it is, certainly under UK law. Uh, the thing about reputation is this, and, and that's the business I'm in. I'm in the business of defending reputations. Reputation is a social value that goes back not just to the origins of this country uh, or to the Magna Carta and other places in England. It goes back uh, essentially to the origins of civilization. People fought in combat in order to uh, defend reputation. Uh, Justice Potter Stewart of the Supreme Court in a concurring opinion in a case brought when the court was still trying to figure out uh, how to proceed from New York Times versus Sullivan uh, and how uh, burdens of proof should be allotted, uh, said words that I believe in, that the value of a man's reputation is something that goes to the very root of ordered liberty. In other words, it's something to be protected. We share that concept with uh, Great Britain. Uh, So that a law that uh, would allow any kind, not just terrorism cases, to come over and, uh, in effect, be rejected over here is something that I think is simply not going to pass muster. The other element of it is that the New York uh, Court of Appeals found that under existing law, there is no basis for asserting jurisdiction in our courts over someone who simply sues abroad and then follows the procedures of that foreign jurisdiction to notify the person that they're being sued. This law would turn that upside uh, down. Uh, I've heard a lot said today about the fact that uh, if the material uh, with the alleged libel in it is uh, published in New York, that ought to be enough. But what if it's published somewhere else? (coughs) Things that are published in New York, just ask uh, the New York Times and Dow Jones and others, are also published uh, in England and other countries so that the same material can uh, reach and do harm there. Uh, we now live in the Internet age where a libel can be published, uh, whether it's a major uh, member of the news media, a, a book, an article, a blog, or whatever, and destroy a reputation over across the world in a couple of minutes. That's the age in which we live. Some notion of The problem of globalization has been advanced in these discussions. I believe that that is something that is not the business of the state of New York. I believe it's the business of the political branches of our government. It's part of international relationships. It's part of diplomacy. Uh, If this problem is to be solved, it's got to be done on the basis of comity, that mutual respect that uh, nations have, it's not going to be solved by becoming insular, wrapping the flag around everybody who writes anything in the United States that can now get around the world in a matter of minutes, uh, it's got to be solved through mutual respect, or at least a joint belief in Western values, which we share with uh, Great Britain. Uh, I could say quite a bit more about it, but uh, That's a, my time is. Thank goes. you.
1: Thank you very much. And uh, ladies and gentlemen, that is what makes a, a panel. Uh, Mr. Kornstein, would you? Would you engage uh, in a conversation with with Mr. Walsh? Answer him a bit, ask him a question if you like, challenge, he'll answer back. Go ahead.
5: Sure. Um, Maybe the, the easiest way is to read a line or two from an English libel decision where the English judge says, the threat of libel litigation by a rich and unscrupulous complainant could be used as an economic weapon against an impecunious researcher or publisher, rather than for any legitimate purpose. Uh, and the inquiry should be whether that person was using the law of defamation as a blunt instrument to hide wrongdoing. Who wrote those words? Judge Edie in a different case in 2006. Tell us again who Judge Eady is, please. Uh, Judge Eady was the judge in uh, Dr. Ehrenfeld's case and has been the judge in uh, many uh, libel cases. As I understand it, the way it works uh, in London, that as the chief judge of those judges who take libel cases, uh, he can pick which ones he wants and uh, has often taken uh, the ones that he thought were more exciting. Um, But the principle that he's enunciating is the principle that we're trying to vindicate and show and that's the important thing that even Judge Eady understands. He may misapply it he may not uh, fully uh, get it and one thing to keep in mind in none of the situations where Bin Mufuz has gotten apologies has there ever been a determination on the merits after an adversary proceeding. There's never been a trial. There's never been cross-examination. There's never been evidence uh, produced. The The economic factor is very real because, remember earlier today, we heard uh, the uh, Ezra Levant talk about costs uh, being a good thing to do. Well, if you're in England and you're responsible for your adversary's costs as well as your own and the risk of... Uh, uh, going through trial is immense, and you're dealing with a book that is not a bestseller. I mean, keep in mind the kinds of books we're talking about. We're not talking about John Grisham or Tom Clancy. We're talking about uh, books that have limited audiences that don't earn that much money for publishers, and they have to decide, are they going to uh, devote hundreds of thousands of dollars, possibly even millions of dollars to a defense, a libel case that can go on for many, many years when uh, they're just not going to make that much in receipts. That's the real problem.
1: Dan, is that your answer uh, to this charge, that you all simply
5: refused to fight, uh, that you didn't press forward, that, that it was prohibitive? Well, uh, I'm not used to uh, discussing attorney-client privileges <laughs> with an audience of uh, many people. Um, uh, what? Uh, Dr. Ehrenfeld has said, but what Dr. Ehrenfeld has said in the papers in the New York case is that uh, because of the cost of the English litigation, potential cost, as well as the principle of not submitting the problem of American freedoms and American uh, First Amendment rights of expression to an English court that operates under um, a uh, lesser version was what motivated her not to um, contest the case in England.
3: Two things. Uh, Justice Eady's recognition that there can be malevolent libel suits brought for an ulterior motive doesn't mean that there aren't lots of legitimate libel suits brought over there and over here. that's one. Number two, I, let's just generalize about Mahfouz and get away from Dr. Ehrenfeld and her decision uh, with uh, your assistance, I assume, Dan. Uh, in 41 situations, why hasn't anybody taken the bully, bully pulpit and put Mahfouz where he has to be, as the complaining plaintiff, on the stand and be cross-examined and use all that evidence that's been accumulated,
5: and cross-examine him. Well, the deck is stacked because of the rules of law that apply. Uh, you, you don't go to an environment or a forum where you know going in that it's difficult to win, perhaps not impossible, but it's difficult to win because the way the law is applied. If the burden is all of a sudden on you instead of on the other guy, if the information you're dealing with is classified and you can't uh, necessarily get access to it, if, uh, and remember, the Jameel case came down long after the decision in Dr. Ehrenfeld's case. And in the Jameel case, which tended to bring the English law more in line with American law, the highest court in England, the House of Lords, criticized Judge Eady, saying that he was undermining absolutely undermining the prior rule that should have done the the job. Uh, I see Dr. Ehrenfeld has her hand up. Uh, Can she comment? Sure, of course. I think a microphone is coming. Excuse me a second.
6: Thank you. A major decision, two major um, elements in the decision not to go forward with the British court was as my wonderful attorney said uh, one was also the enormous financial burden which would have been uh, at the time that I wrote it was unknown to me how big it will be and by the way the, by the way the financial burden here uh, is not small and it has to be met yet. Uh, But in addition, the American government, uh, there was an anticipation that the U.S. government will designate Ben Mahfouz since his foundation and the director of his foundation were designated as as helping terrorism. uh, It was perhaps anticipated that he will be designated too. He was not. If the government, it's much more difficult to prove anything Although we had all kinds of classified uh, semi-published documents, testimonies in Congress, documents in court, uh, to go against somebody that neither the US government and therefore not the British government had designated the stories for whatever reasons, would have been impossible. In the, in the US, I have enough evidence uh, to, and, and I have the, would have the possibility to depose him and and really show to everybody that uh, he is financing terrorism. Uh, I have plenty of evidence to prove that. It would do nothing in England, especially because of the designation. And I don't have millions of dollars and I couldn't raise millions of dollars in order to counter it.
1: Thank you, Rachel. Thanks so much. Uh, John, do you want to... uh
3: uh, I, ju- I just think with all the ardent support I see for Dr. Ehrenfeld in this room and uh, of like-minded folks elsewhere, and the major media organizations that have gotten behind the passage of this bill, it might have been possible. I'm, I'm, you know, This is just all uh, second-guessing, obviously, yeah. with, with a perspective on what took place but uh, I guess I'm more w- uh, wondering why nobody else. Why didn't that, uh, why didn't Cambridge take on this? Why did they agree uh, without a lawsuit even being filed? Uh, th- that is.
1: And here's, here's a question I have, Andy. Why wasn't Cambridge stigmatized? Why, why didn't, you know, they committed an infamy there ought to have been a great uprising against them, and their name ought to have been mud. They ought to have been thought cowards and weaklings and, and illiberal and so on. But it seems to me they've paid no price. Am, am I wrong? I mean, I'm, I'm envisioning picket lines outside them and shaming placards and so on. Yeah. But they're not ashamed, are they?
2: No, they're not ashamed, and I think that was uh, the one of the last points that Mark Stein made and one of the most important points he's made. Uh, you know, the I guess the problem if it is a problem with a panel like this is we're stuck on dry legal issues and a lot of this does come up in a legal context. But I just to go back to first premises, I, I would maintain that first of all the government is concerned and then widening the scope a bit more. That's just if, what John Walsh said. And I agree it, with that. Mm. Um, I, I think we probably come out in different places about what the government ought to do, but let's look first and foremost when you are dealing with the international arena. That is the arena of diplomacy. It is the arena of political processes, not judicial processes. Uh, Holmes, if we're going to go back to quoting Holmes, uh, in around 1910 in in a unanimous Supreme Court wrote that when it goes to an issue of the life of the state, Uh, executive processes are to be preferred to judicial processes. When we're in in that kind of a thicket, um, these problems, because we're so litigious, arise in the context of litigation and law, but that doesn't mean they're essentially legal problems. They're essentially political problems. And to go to Mark's point, um, taking another step back from that, we're not only missing the boat in the divide between the political and, and the legal, culturally, this is a is probably a bigger problem than it is a governmental problem yeah. because it goes no to kidding. what kind of what kind of people the American people are, uh, rather than you know what derelictions their government may engage in. Yeah,
1: I, I think of the phrase "show some spine." John Walsh, I'm going to go to the judge. I, I, I,
3: here's my favorite objection. Really, uh, I should have mentioned it earlier. Uh, the uh, LTPA was amended at the last minute before it passed the the, the Senate once again and the Assembly. And the amendment uh, made for uh, to give jurisdiction in a New York court to any person anywhere in the country who could claim to be subject to uh, New York jurisdictional law if he were a defendant amenable to the jurisdiction of the courts of uh, New York. Now that's a very odd twist that the (laughs) considerations that would make one uh, drawn into New York State, say a citizen of California with sufficient contacts with New York to become uh, a defendant here, to be sued here, uh, now gives you a basis for becoming a a plaintiff here. That turns to my way of thinking due process uh, principles upside down. Uh, And and, and the other thing about it is that the ultimate test of whether a foreign libel judgment should be enforced here, in my view, should not be the comparative law uh, matching who has the burden of proof over here in the United States and who has the burden of proof on what over in England or France or anywhere else. But on the evidence that is assembled in that foreign case. To me, it's notwithstanding where the burdens of proof may fall, it's entirely conceivable that a uh, person who brings a libel suit in the UK could bring in sufficient uh, evidence, if they choose, notwithstanding the burden of proofs on the defendant, to show that they could meet the New York Times versus Sullivan and related tests over here. Why should a person who could do that be deprived simply by automatic action of this statute? Uh, If I I was advising anybody in the UK about how to deal with this statute, uh, if it passes and is signed, uh, I would say, uh, even though uh, the defendant has the burden of proof, bring in enough evidence so that you can argue over here when you need to come over here to collect so that you can argue that the uh, Sullivan test was met.
1: Andy, one minute, and I'm gonna to go to Judge Bork. Uh,
3: I, I just think that um,
2: there's a lot of underrating what it takes to prove these assertions that have been responsibly repeated in Rachel's book and in other books. I mean, I, I, the blind sheikh is now a terrorist. Anybody gets to write that line. It took me 10 months to prove it. With every resource and power that is available to the United States government uh, that I was able to compel as a prosecutor that no civil litigant can compel. And if, if, what, if what the test is going to be is you know sheikh bin Mahfouz takes something Richard Clark testifies to the Senate to and then goes to a court in England and says, okay, prove it. And now the question is, does Rachel Ehrenfeld go over there and have the 10-month trial, like I had in New York, except with standards that don't favor her and without the powers I had to compel evidence? It's just a a ridiculous burden.
1: John, John, I keep sliding Judge Bork, but that that seems to me unanswerable. Am I wrong?
3: uh, Oh, I think you're wrong. I think uh Andy's wrong Uh uh, because it should turn not on a difference-of-burden-of-proof assignment, but on the evidence that's actually introduced in the record. I got it. I got it. Thank you. Uh, Judge?
4: Well, I don't understand. Sure, sure it should turn upon the evidence, but if we're talking about the American political process and political speeches... That's
1: okay. Excuse me, Judge. Keep going. Don't mind me.
4: Well, I'll try not to. Keep
7: going.
4: (laughs) Uh, 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 It does depend upon the evidence, but if the... What's at stake is the integrity of the American political process and political speech, which up until McCain-Feingold was thought to be the center of the First Amendment. Uh, Then to to ask somebody to engage in a a defense of those principles, like Ms. Ehrenfeld, for months and months in court is ridiculous. it is well-known tactic in major litigation and i did a lot of major litigation in my youth (laughs) uh, to let to run people out of money Uh. judge here's a
1: i have a question for you It, it may be too big for the three minutes i'm giving you but you know it used to be you published a book in a country denmark and Gee, maybe it went Scandinavia-wide and, uh, you know, it went to Sweden and Norway or published a book in New York. But any old schnook with a computer now can publish worldwide in seconds just by pressing a button. Does that give us a new ball ballgame?
4: Of course it does. Uh, and there's no doubt that... Uh Libelous remarks may inflict real damage on people in, ver- in various countries, unlike our, aside from the United States. Uh, and none of these proposals are, are wonderful or solve everything. But it is, it is the crucial thing is to maintain the integrity of the American political process, which is the which is the basis of our freedoms and the basis of our civilization's values. And we must not say that some researcher with limited resources, very limited resources, has to go up against Sheikh mafus in order to defend our culture.
1: I'm going to ask you a, a big cultural and psychological question. The American people have what it takes to stand up to these jihadists? Are we too easily intimidated? Have we been so cowed by a generation or two of political correctness and multiculturalism that we don't have the confidence to stand on principle?
4: Well, it's true that we, ha- we have a crisis of confidence, a crisis of nerve in Western societies. They don't feel as sure of their values. And one of the ways we talk about that, we talk about being non nonjudgmental, uh, which means that we people do things and we say, well, who am I to condemn it. So there is that, but uh, the the rest of your question again?
1: Just about whether we've been so cowed,
4: are we going to be intimidated? I think we have been cowed in a way, but I think a a large factor is that we are very comfortable. We are people who are very comfortable. We don't like to make sacrifices for anything.
1: Being comfortable is related to being complacent, isn't it?
4: yeah and and they the people don't want to think. A lot of people don't want to think about the unpleasantness that faces us for the for a generation or two at least and and the sacrifices that's going to call for from their children and our grandchildren. But if they, if they don't think about it, they're going to lose what they value most.
1: Now, McCarthy, Cornstein, and Welsh are going to get a grand are going to get a grand thirty seconds each if they care to take it. Andy, do you have a closing thought?
2: Uh, I, I just, I just don't think it. We can tolerate having legal strictures, especially the legal strictures of other countries, imposed on our public policy. I, I stress again, there are many, many things that aren't true or that are true that we need to know and that we need to base policy on that can't be proved under courtroom Mm -hmm. standards. And that's why we have classified information, that's why we have, you know, a lot of other means of verifying information besides our court system.
5: Dan Kornstein? The way I like to think about it, and we said this to courts at various times, is if because of the chilling effect, the, the threat of enforcement some article or book is not published that would have led to the discovery of some terrorist plot, some horrible bombing, and that didn't see the light of day, and that horrible event happened because people were not allowed to write what their investigations, research had showed, isn't that the greatest harm and uh, fallout and problem from this? And that's why we can't let it happen.
3: There's another constitutional value found in the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments called due process. And due process is what will be the, I believe, uh, the death knell of attempts to assert jurisdiction over foreigners who have never done anything in the United States except have their papers in a foreign suit served over here. You're taking the (laughs) fifth.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, um, like you, I've heard a lot of panels and rarely have I heard such a thoughtful, conscientious, and public-spirited bunch. Thank you very much.
3: we I think we're done. <laughs> Any questions? Do mm-hmm. so we have pause?
1: No microphone, but how quickly they forget? I was told to end at 3.30 sharp, so I did, but apparently that's not true. Roger, how much uh, time do we have?
0: Oh, why don't you take a few questions here? <laughs> A
1: few questions. Yes, sir. Hello? Oh,
0: sorry.
1: I, I, I got a
8: microphone. Ah, so you Listen, do. He I'm, has the microphone, wheels the power. I'm actually British, uh, by not by naturalization, but I'm in the process of applying for a visa to come live here, because I'm fleeing Britain with my wife and young child, uh, because I think it's going to be dangerous to live there. There are so many things that uh, were said there. First of all, I don't think Rachel would have found a reputable barrister or QC for all the money in the world to have taken her case. That's, that's even if there was unlimited money, nobody would have taken the case. There, there's a group of Israeli lawyers who go around the world trying to sue on behalf of terror victims. The only place in the world they can't get decent lawyers to act for them is London. And there are plenty of Jewish lawyers who should be standing up, but they won't. So that's one 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 possible reason. Secondly, of course, the, why fear, money, all the other reasons. They know that the work would dry up for them. They would be drummed out of town. You've got a judge in this case, and I'm going to say it because I'm in America in the First Amendment, who's probably in the pocket of the uh, person who's bringing the action. And that is... You, you're, you're, you're back in Chicago in the 1930s when you're talking about this. The guy has handed down 20 judgments that have never been... to court to court on behalf of this particular litigant, and he's had 40 that have never been to court. Now you're assuming from that that perhaps he is, uh, he's got some merit to his cases. I'm going to look the other way and I'm going to say he's never been to court because everybody is too scared. Britain is scared, and that's why I've left. Anyway, it's not really a question, I'm sorry to take the floor like that.
1: On the, uh Extreme right or left, however you choose to sit. This man here.
9: Uh, John a senior fellow, Discovery Institute. I'd like to raise one possibility for the panel to consider as a solution. Rather than an international lowest common denominator treaty with large numbers of countries deeply hostile to free speech, or leaving authors looking at being sued in 191 countries, How about following what John Bolton did with the International Criminal Court Treaty when he negotiated about 100 or so article 98 agreements with countries saying you cannot prosecute American soldiers under this treaty. So we can go and negotiate starting with our allies, which may or may not have quotation marks, and negotiate with them agreements that while protecting the right to sue for malicious falsehoods, that prevent this kind of harassment and just negotiate on a bilateral basis rather than getting a lowest lowest common denominator hash of the kind of thing one would expect at the U.N. or, uh, or other international bodies.
1: Andy McCarthy, what do you say to that? Um, since Let a 100 treaties bloom
2: yeah, for 200. Ground. Well, I, I think the idea is not to have one big multinational mcgilla, and as far as that goes, since Jay is here on, on National Review's behalf, I'll say that I'm as far as international multilateral treaties go, I, I stand athwart treaties yelling, stop. Um, I think we're, we're always uh, in a problem when we try to uh, enter into something like that. And I do like the, the bilateral approach a lot better than the multilateral. And
1: notice that it was a panelist named McCarthy. He used the word McGillah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes.
7: Hello. I, I, I'm Elisa Laffin, senior fellow at the American Center for Democracy, and I'd like to answer uh mr walsh specifically as to your question about why in 41 cases no one has ever taken the case to britain uh we heard our friend from britain explain that the system there is completely corrupt number one number two uh as judge bork noted uh the question is what is evidence you see the problem is that in britain what is stated in a congressional testimony is not considered primary evidence and it cannot be accepted there as therefore it would be impossible for Dr. Ehrenfeld to bring her case in Britain and be successful because she is not going to get former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright to come to Britain and testify on her behalf and then there's the problem of money you said well you know there are lots of people here who support Dr. Ehrenfeld in two years of our small uh, Foundation has not been able to raise the money that is required even to take care of our American legal case. And in Britain, it would cost probably four to eight times as much. I think that's your answer. And if you're going to keep asking the same question, then obviously there's a question I want to ask you. Are your values American values or Saudi values?
3: You're you're, you're, you're sort of going over the top now, Madam. Uh, I happen to agree with Andy, uh, who wrote in his paper, that Islamic Jihad is the issue of our time. You don't know anything about me, except that I'm a practicing lawyer. You've just insulted me, because I'm up here speaking my mind in defense of legal principles that I understand and think should be applied. And I think you should retract it.
4: Well said, John.
3: Very well said. Thank
4: you. Yeah, I, 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 I associate myself with your remarks. Here,
2: here.
1: Roger, shall we have two more uh, yes. or one more?
4: How can they keep, we'll keep saying more?
1: It. We'll have two more. This man's been very patient. Mm. Yes.
4: We may
10: have had one two men. I Hi. My name is Sam Abadie. I've written a couple of pieces about libel tourism, and I'd like to do two things, succinctly, if I can. One is to answer Mr. Walsh, uh, and two to put a question to Judge Bork and to Mr. Kornstein. Uh, um, We have time for two brief questions from two people. Would it be okay if you gave us the question? Okay. all right. I'll put it in the interrogative form. <laughs> um, <laughs>
3: this, he said he put it in interrogative <laughs> form. S- sounds
10: like Jeopardy. <laughs> uh, Mr. Walsh, uh, I did read your New York uh, Law Journal piece, uh, which stresses the value of comedy, which I think most lawyers would endorse as a general principle. But Andy McCarthy very eloquently made reference to the gossamer basis of personal jurisdiction. Um, And as you know, asserting jurisdiction over a litigant in court is a matter of constitutional dimension, uh, due process, which you have emphasized, what we lawyers call the international shoe test or minimum contacts test. Now, don't you feel, my question to you is do you believe that that presents a problem here where Australian, Canadian, and British courts have asserted gossamer jurisdiction over foreigners simply because someone like Ben Mahfouz, likely through, I don't know this as fact, but likely through Confederates who would go on Amazon or Barnes and Noble and order copies of Dr. Aaron Ehrenfeld's book, and on that and that alone, um, be able to hail a foreigner into a British court or due to the cost of defending, get a default judgment. And in that regard, just keep in mind that when Deborah Lipstadt, was sued by David Irving in the Holocaust denial case, which she ultimately won. Her legal fees were over $3 million, something I believe she couldn't have afforded but for the support of her university and contributors. So do you believe that the lack of reciprocity in terms of minimum contacts as a due process concept, which does not exist in Commonwealth courts but does exist here,
3: presents a problem? couple of things. Uh, new York law uh, already says that it does not need to enforce a judgment obtained in a foreign uh, jurisdiction, uh, which had no personal jurisdiction uh, over the New Yorker. Uh, that's an existing law. You don't need a new law in I order understand. to do that. You might be surprised to know, uh, with reference to the 23 uh, copies of the book that found their way into Great Britain, uh, that a US court Uh, hailed the New York Post, I think it was, into either California or Hawaii, I've forgotten which, on the basis of six copies of the New York Post uh, delivered to subscribers in that jurisdiction. Uh, The Supreme Court's principles on that kind of jurisdiction are are well known. Uh, That's what I happen to think this law is going to uh, founder on. Uh, when the next uh, attempt to drag somebody into court over here uh, comes into play after this law is undoubtedly uh, signed uh, by the governor. Did did Uh, you say six copies of the New York Post? Six copies of the New York Post were the basis of jurisdiction.
1: That's pretty paltry for a Murdoch publication. (laughs) 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 Then do not raise your hand unless you can ask your question in under 30 seconds, and it must be a question, not a statement. In the back, please. Take your pick.
4: What's going on?
11: Uh, English law. Um, You had a time where, about IRA terrorists, that you couldn't park a car with IRA plates. You could be held, even if you were a British citizen, um, for an indefinite amount of time without being charged with a crime. And, uh, I mean, I had friends who rented an Irish car that was blown up on purpose by the police because it had Irish plates on it, and these guys were from Jersey. Um, It just seems like not only has that retracted, but it's gone completely 180, and that people now uh, have the rights not only to voice themselves uh, in an anti-British, anti-American, anti-equality way, but to Voice themselves with um, uh, terrorist tendencies. Uh, when, what, do you, you think there was a watershed time that, that, that this happened, that it switched? Andy, wrap her
2: up I think w- I think we have a, a pendulum. Uh, what we thought about due process requirements was different on September 12th than it is today. If we get another terrorist attack, uh, it'll be different still after that. But this is a new type of struggle. It's a new type of war and i think we're in many ways feeling our way through it it's not quite like the wars that uh, that we think of when we when we think about war it's certainly not a crime and we have these two paradigms and we're trying to figure out which is the best barometer which is the best place that we need to be in for due process i don't think we've figured it out yet but you know the pendulum may have swung too far one way and now it may have swung too far another way but i do think the resiliency of the american people is ultimately we'll get to the right place i just hope too many bad things don't have to happen before we do.
1: Well, now we're really done. Let's have a round of applause for Andy McCarthy, Dan Kornstein, John Walsh, and Bob Fork. Thank you very much for
3: that C plus. Thank you. Um, oh I
0: see, oh on the program, there is a, no uh, <laughs> a line that says concluding remarks, but my remarks are going to be very brief indeed. It's mostly to, um, to thank you all for coming behalf of of Andy and uh, the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies and the new criterion. Uh, I think this has been uh, an unusually uh, fertile conference. A lot of very important ideas have been expressed. I personally think that the suite of issues that um, uh, are raised by the problem of libel tourism and related issues, the, the issue of uh, free speech in an age of jihad, uh, are among the most important that we face, not only because um, of the threats that they represent, but also because of the kind of response or lack of response uh, that we have made uh, to these threats. Uh, I think Mark Stein was particularly eloquent uh, in his lunch talk of, of, about this. But uh, in closing, uh, I just want to say that there's going to be a, a brief reception uh, next door where we had lunch, and I hope you all join us and and give Jay and Andy and uh, uh, Dan Kornstein and John Walsh and Judge Bork a round of applause. Thank you very
7: much.